Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in today. Our guest today is Ted Genoways, and he has a brand new book out. It's called This Blessed Earth, A Year in the Life of an American Family Farm. And actually, Willie Nelson has read the book, and he says it's a universal story of family farmers and all they're up against. Ted covers a year that was really pivotal in the life of the not just the Hammond family farm, but in a lot of central Plain states farms 2014 and 2015 was a crazy year they had mild weather and then heavy rainfall that led to higher than expected yields and you know in a lot of companies and a lot of industries if you're able to produce more you're able to sell more and that means a higher profit but when that happens with a family farm um, a glut in uh, supply can mean a drop in crop prices and they were going through that during that year they were also going through uh, a situation with encroaching pipelines groundwater depletion and a whole other uh, gamut of issues that impacted their farm and Ted was able to chronicle all of this and I'm so pleased to have him on the show today. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Ted, and congratulations on your new book. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, since we started Go Green Radio nine years ago, we've done a lot of shows about food, but typically we talk about it in terms of how it relates to the environment and human health. But I think your book really brings a fresh and needed perspective to our listeners, and that is the impact that this newest food revolution that we're going through is having on the people that we rely upon to produce that food. And I'd love to start off by having you talk to us about how you first hatched the idea to write a book that illuminates this critical point of view. Sure. Well, I, I think as, as you allude to, and as certainly your listeners know, that in the last decade or so, there's been a real shift in, in the way that the consumers broadly think about um, food production and about the food that they're consuming. And, you know, after, after decades of having sort of a, a love affair with prepackaged processed food and with fast food, there was suddenly, um, I think really in the wake of Eric Schlosser's Fast Food Nation and Michael Pollan's The Omnivore's Dilemma, there was this kind of generation of, of what I think of as, as enlightened eaters. Um, and so there, you, you know, you get the emergence of the slow food movement and the, the local food movement and, and certainly then all of this interest and question about the organic uh, certification and about animal welfare approval and these sorts of things. Um, the conversation, as far as I could tell, was really aimed at um, the consumer and talking about how these things made the food more healthful or made um, the, the practices more sustainable. Um, but I didn't hear much conversation about how this was affecting farmers themselves. And there seemed to be a lot of assumption that going back to certain practices um, that were seen as more um, organic or were um, old-fashioned, um, this assumption that that would automatically benefit 
the farmers, and especially small farmers. Um, but I didn't see very many people who were going and actually talking to family farmers about how these changes were affecting them. And so the idea really started from something that simple of saying, you know, we should, we should include these farmers in the conversation and see what they have to say. And I, I had been hearing from people already um, in, on the meat production side of things in the, the years leading up to, to starting on this book that they often felt like they, they were forced by corporations to make expensive changes that, that were all driven by consumer demands. And so if consumers suddenly demanded that meat is you know, cage-free or is free-range or is um, any of these these new categories, antibiotic-free, um, that while they may be in agreement with th- th- those sorts of, of practices, that how they were implemented very often was simply a top-down instruction from someone in a corporate office saying, this is what consumers now demand, and so you have to meet this demand in order to remain one of our vendors. And so I guess I was looking for ways of, of bringing farmers into the conversation in ways that they could talk about what they thought would be helpful for reform to the food system, but in, a, in methods that, that hopefully made things more financially sustainable for them as well and, and allowed their farms to thrive. Mm-hmm. And you met the Hammond family, I believe, during the Keystone XL protest process. And uh, I'd like for you to talk to us a little bit about that family and why you chose them, but also their story as it relates to the Keystone XL protests. Sure. You know, so um, my wife, Marianne Andre, and I uh, work together often. Um, she's a photographer and um, the two of us will often work together on magazine stories. We had been working on on stories related to the Keystone XL um, controversy and um, and about the fact that you know this pipeline that was scheduled to um, originate from the tar sands in Alberta and stretch all the way to the Gulf Coast in Texas happened to cross not only the state of Nebraska, but cross this in several places, um, land owned by, by Rick Hammond and his family in York and Hamilton County, Nebraska. And we were struck by the Hammonds because they had joined with a group of other farmers and ranchers who were opposing the pipeline. It also um, started to take some interesting steps in how they they protested. They had formed a group of their own initially before joining up with Bold Nebraska, which is a larger anti-pipeline group. Um, They'd taken out ads in the local newspaper, and finally they had hit upon the idea of of building a barn directly in the, the line where the pipeline had been sighted to go through that would be powered by solar panels and a small wind turbine. And because the barn itself had very few sort of electrical needs, they were 
thing hooked up to the grid so that they could put power um, back onto the grid locally. And it became an opportunity for them to point out that that this energy project and this thing that was being sold as something that would be energy from a friendly neighbor that they said, you know, that none of the of the products coming from the tar sands would be something that would be consumed in the United States. It wasn't an energy project for the U.S. And that that their little barn was putting more energy back into the state of Nebraska than than TransCanada ever would. <laughs> right. And so, understandably, we we were intrigued by um, by a family that that had taken this approach and kind of had this this idea of, of, of how to draw attention to this also. Mm-hmm. And so it was through some of, especially Marianne's um, friendship that kind of emerged with, uh, with Megan Hammond, who was Rick's daughter, that we started to talk to her about, you know, trying to portray something of what is at stake for some of the, the KXL families to see the full scale of their operation and to show the, the degree to which it would be put at risk by that project. And so we talked to Megan, then we talked to her boyfriend, now her husband, Kyle Galloway, and talked to, to Megan's father, Rick, about this idea of following them for a full year, to, to, to follow them from one harvest to the next, to see the full cycle on the farm, and to see the, the extent to which these places that I think many of us think of as being isolated and um, at some remove from the cares of the world, that in fact many of these international issues, um, just like the pipeline itself, seem to run right through their acreage. Right. And and what were their specific opposition points against the Keystone XL pipeline? I mean, they don't strike me as the kind of family that's, you know, kind of got the Hollywood bent, uh, you know, to the to the protest. They had some much more um, salient concerns, as I understand it, to things that might impact food production. What, what were those objections? It's true. So first, I should say that the Hammonds, I think, were, were one of the first families to, to really kind of talk about the broader environmental issues. I think they're, they're a much more kind of green-concerned family, which is part of the reason that I think that the so-called energy barn, the solar-powered barn, was one of the ideas that occurred to them. But they also recognized that if, as they were trying to get other farmers and ranchers on board, that there was a a more immediate risk that the pipeline posed in the form of, of potential contamination of, of their water source, which for almost all of the, the farmers and ranchers in eastern Nebraska is the Ogallala Aquifer that, that underlies that part of the state. Mm-hmm. It's, ex- it's extremely shallow in that part of the state. I mean, there are some places up in the, the sort of northern sandhills where that the aquifer actually breaks the surface at, at certain times and that you get standing pools of water um, right at the surface. But even where the Hammonds are, um, it's, it's only a few feet deep. And so they said, you know, as, as TransCanada is talking about building a 36-inch pipe, uh, you know, so a three-foot circumference, 
mm-hmm. and they're going to bury it, um, we're talking about basically digging down to the, the, the level of the water table and then submerging a, a pipe into that water that we use and rely on um, that will be carrying not only the, the fuel itself in the form of the tar sands, but also all kinds of unknown chemical diluents that are used in order to make the, those tar sands move through the pipeline. Right, right. And, and they were deeply concerned that if there were ever a spill, as there certainly had been and continued to be through, through the, the controversies uh, over KXL, they saw firsthand what had happened in Marshall, Michigan with the, the rupture mm-hmm. of the Enbridge pipeline there and then what happened with the Pegasus Pipeline in Mayflower, Arkansas. And they said, you know, if we ever had a rupture like this, we'd be in trouble. Right. Well, and and that's something that I think, you know, can't be emphasized enough. I mean, that aquifer feeds a lot of people, not just in the United States, but around the world. We've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll have so much more with Ted and his new book, This Blessed Earth, A Year in the Life of an American Family Farm. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio, and thanks for joining us, everybody. If you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Ted Genoways, and he's the author of a brand new book that I highly recommend. It's called This Blessed Earth, A Year in the Life of an American Family Farm. And if you ever wonder what's going on on the other end of your food production, Ted illuminates this like no other book or magazine article or blog I've ever seen, and I really recommend picking this book up if you want to understand the complete life cycle of your food. You know, Ted, I think it's really important for Americans to understand how their food system works, and a big part of that is actually how farmers get paid. And for us, I think for a lot of Americans, the most visibility they have to that issue is hearing about subsidies every time a farm bill comes before Congress. And I know that I'm asking you to squeeze a watermelon into a Coke bottle with this question, Ted, but can you help us understand the revenue stream for a family farm like the Hammonds and how precarious their livelihood is? Sure. Well, I'll try. So the the first thing is that... um, that subsidies are an important part of how farms operate. And part of that has to do with the fact that the, the federal government, since instituting the subsidies, was really recognizing that they wanted to keep farmers in business um, through difficult times so that we didn't experience something like what happened with the Dust Bowl. Um, because that, that slows uh, the recovery of the food system in, in a crisis period. And so it made sense to keep people who were experienced and who dedicated to this lifestyle but had experienced, um, you know, in one form or another, a period of difficulty. Where things get into trouble is that over time, the subsidies came to be uh, a way in which the, the, the government was not only subsidizing the farmer but subsidizing a food system that was really built around the idea of overproduction. So while farms are absolutely run as a business and you've got a product that you're, that you're producing there on the farm and that you are marketing in the form of taking a grains to an elevator where it is sold according to the current price at the Chicago Board of Trade, often with some you know, margin of profit for the local elevator, um, that, those prices are kept artificially low um, by a system that, that was designed really to, to grow these grains not only as a food source, but really as a food that we were hoping to export and make the rest of the world reliant on in a way that would give, uh, I guess in the most positive way of looking at things, would, would create periods of, of peace as we were interconnected um, through our most vital resource. Um, but also would give the U.S. leverage over, over foreign powers by, by controlling the food supply. And so now the whole system is really built toward trying to, for farmers to try to keep their, um, their costs and their, their overhead at a level that allows them to basically break even with the product that they're producing. And then the subsidies are, are essentially what uh, what each farm is is able to clear in a year. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I want to go a little bit more into depth on the geopolitical ramifications of our food system because your book has numerous 
fascinating history lessons in it that helped me understand things I'd never considered before. And one of the things that I was particularly caught by was a, um, a piece in the book that really helped me understand how agriculture became agribusiness. You talk about global trade agreements and and what a huge impact that has had on the family farm in America. And I, I never really understood that until I read This Blessed Earth. Can you talk to our listeners about how the Secretary of Agriculture back in the early 70s, Earl Butts, saw food as a weapon and how that changed the American farm and how it operated? Right. So there had been some period of uh, coming out of, of World War II and the, the Cold War, some effort at trying to keep our farms at, at the high level of, of production that they had been at during World War II and also keep the chemical industry um, propped up a bit after the war um, by having those resources reallocated toward fertilizers and, and other chemical productions for the farm. But it was really after the OPEC oil crisis that that Nixon's government began to, and his administration began to look at um, our own resources and ask, well, what are the things that we could manipulate supply of and choke off supply um, to get foreign policy leverage similar to what the OPEC nations were able to do with oil? And the conclusion of Earl Butts, who was Nixon's uh, Secretary of Agriculture at the time, was that food was a weapon, um, those being his very words, Mm -hmm. and that if we were willing to regard food not as something that was a basic right of of all citizens of the world, but as something that was a, a commodity like anything else, and something that we produced better than other parts of the world and could control, um, then we could use it as an instrument of foreign policy. And that's really the way that, that our agricultural policy has been set and the way that food production has been viewed in this country ever since. Mm-hmm. And and we've had guests on Go Green Radio before talk about, quote-unquote, big food, um, but typically it's couched in terms of their environmental impact, or we, we've talked about lawsuits over GMO seeds and things like that, but we've never really talked about how big food has impacted family farms from the standpoint of market manipulation, and your book covers that. And I, I want to read a passage from your book and have you explain it to our listeners in greater detail. This is what you write. Knowing that food was now a matter of national security and that the government would intervene to protect it, Cargill and soon other major agribusinesses recognized that they could manipulate the market to produce greater profits regardless of the impact on American farmers. Help us understand that, Ted. That is kind of a mind-blown moment. Well, Cargill was really the first to recognize this, and they recognized this also in the the early 70s, um, that if the government was looking at food production um, as was in that passage as, as a matter of national security or an instrument of foreign policy, another way of thinking of it, then that meant that the government had an interest in keeping agribusiness propped up um, 
well beyond just feeding uh, the citizenry or, uh, you know, keeping farmers in business. And so what they, they realized was that they could, they could manipulate prices by themselves creating artificial scarcity. And the, the, the famous incident with Cargill was a case where they used a subsidiary that they had um, to, cre- to start buying up um, soybeans in a way that, that indicated to the market that there was going to be a scarcity of soybeans and got other people suddenly making large purchases and drove up the prices. And once the prices were extremely high, um, Cargill canceled through that subsidiary its own soybean purchases in order to of having to, to make those, those purchases at that price. But on their other side of things, they, they were able to then release the soybeans into the market capture a huge profit. And that year, uh, their production of soybeans overall was down, but their, uh, but their profits off of soybeans nearly tripled. Wow. And knowing that was possible, everyone in agribusiness started looking for ways to be really in the business of market manipulation as much as as production. So the, the, the trick ever since then has been with farmers to continually impose uh, through contracting systems uh, requirements that, that keep the corporation's prices down uh, at the same time that they're using their size, their ability to sway markets with, with their own buying and selling to manipulate the market um, and capture that profit for themselves. Wow. And it's hard to think that a, a, a family farm like the Hammonds that you covered could have much of an impact, you know, in the face of those huge corporations and the market influence they can have. Um, what, what do family farms like the Hammonds, you know, how do they, how do they maintain their optimism in the face of such huge market forces? Well, you know, there's there's a point in the book where Rick jokes that that farmers either have to be eternal optimists or just have very short memories, <laughs> and and it's it's and it's really true that um, you know I've never seen uh, as a group of people um, folks who are more convinced that they can overcome whatever the market obstacles are by their wits and by their sweat. And the thing that is, to me, always most moving and heartbreaking about seeing a family like the Hammonds uh, is that they, they always find a way to get through. They, they rely heavily on each other. They lean on each other. Uh, they use all of their generations of knowledge to to pull through these times um, and there's very little reward at the end of that other than at most kind of maintaining a status quo mm-hmm. that so much of, of what labor they put into that ends up being captured as profit by other people um, and 
really what remains for the family is is the land itself and some sense of legacy. Mm-hmm. And and so for me, those things become incredibly important to safeguard and to um, to honor when we start talking about you know what what we want in terms of food system reform because Absolutely. that's that's what they have left. Absolutely. And I think your book does such a beautiful job of of honoring them. That's a perfect word and it's actually something that I I was thinking myself the way that you honor them with the book we've got to take a quick commercial break but when we come back we have so much more to talk about with Ted Genoway so don't go away folks there's more Go Green Radio right after this News Opinions Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I'm so glad that you could all join us. And just in case you've only now tuned in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Ted Genoways, and he has a brand new book out that I just love. It's called This Blessed Earth, A Year in the Life of an American Family Farm. And we've been talking about the, the food system in a, in a new way to go green radio. Oftentimes when we talk about our food system, we talk about human health implications, environmental implications, but we're 
Now talking about how the food revolution that we're in the middle of, you know, we're talking about organics and, you know, clean food and all the things that consumers are demanding um, in the grocery store, how they're impacting the American farmer. And I think that's important for us to know the whole supply chain of our food system. And Ted has done a beautiful job of illuminating that in his new book, This Blessed Earth. So, Ted, one of the things that I was really interested to read, um, because oftentimes we think of farmers and ranchers as two very separate silos in the food system. But one of the things you talk about is how the profits of corn and soybean farmers are actually tied to the livestock market. And I was wondering if you could help us understand how that is so. Right. Well, in, in the simplest way, um, when when there's higher demand for for meat for for human consumption, that means that there's going to be an increased number of animals that are being raised, and that there will be an increased demand for animal feed. And one of the things that that people may not realize is that that when they see a field of corn or soybeans in a place like Nebraska or anywhere else on the Central Plains almost certainly that is being raised as animal feed and and not as something for direct human consumption. And so when there is uh, a moment like the one that we're we're going through now where people are uh, becoming aware of just how much meat we've all been consuming and the, the, the negative health effects of that, but also certainly the the huge environmental concerns that come from that, um, it means that there's less livestock being raised, and it means that that there's another downward pressure on commodities prices in the form of corn and soybeans. And so um, even some of these these positive trends um, end up having, at times, negative impact on especially the small farms where where the margins are narrow, and all that I would argue for is that when we're reforming some of our practices, that if we really want to keep those in place, if we really want the trends to be aimed in that direction, then we need to find ways to make the economic incentives go in that direction also for the farmer to be able to stay afloat. Mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense. And and in fact, the Hammonds also raise Angus cattle for beef. And so we got to see a little bit of the inside of, of that operation as well. And you wrote in the book, almost across the board, beef producers have a love-hate relationship with a consumer base willing to pay extra for an antibiotic-free steak, but without any thought for the potential suffering caused by denying drugs to the cow that produced it. Now, We've talked about this movement of antibiotic-free, hormone-free, removing prophylactic doses of antibiotics from feedstock, and and I'd really like for you to talk to us about what you learned um, by watching the Hammonds work to satisfy grocery shoppers, but still being compassionate with their animals. Right. Yeah, so one of the things that's important to just note is that a lot of this overuse of antibiotics in the meat industry um, really grows not out of any concern for the health of the animal, but just the opposite, that um, from the earliest period when these antibiotics were used, were intended to be used um, 
to save the lives of, of a sick animal, um, what they found was that the animals not only recovered um, from taking the antibiotics, but actually put on weight. And so it became standard practice in the industry to, to give antibiotics to, uh, to livestock as a way of bulking them up and capturing more profit. But obviously what that, that means is that there's, um, that there's a real hazard of antibiotic resistance emerging, which is absolutely what we've seen in the meat industry. Then eventually there's this natural thing that has occurred with consumers saying, well, I want to support people who are not part of this, this practice, who don't, who don't produce their, their uh, meat in this way. And while that is good as a kind of general rule, what it has ended up doing is creating a situation where farmers that, that, and cattle ranchers who have uh, a sudden illness that may sweep through their herd, they have to decide um, whether to let the animals suffer in order to maintain the premium that comes from selling uh, antibiotic-free meat uh, or if they want to treat the animals in, in a way that, um, that would absolutely ease their, their suffering at that moment. And in the mm-hmm. book, you know, one of the, the, the most potent examples is that there was an outbreak of, of pink eye uh, in, in the cattle herd that the Hammonds were raising. And through no fault of their own, it was a, an extremely wet fall and it meant that, uh, that a lot of the uh, of the, the cow manure that would ordinarily dry up and, and not attract flies um, was instead staying moist and was, was you know, becoming a, a breeding ground for flies. And also then as the flies came uh, and, and harvest salt right from the, the eyes of the, of the cattle, um, they spread pink eye to the cows. Mm-hmm. And it's not just painful for the cattle, but... Um, it it does extreme physical damage to to cattle. Unlike with humans, it's it's a really really serious illness, but it's one that can be taken care of usually with a single injection. And so the Hammonds made the decision that they would inject their cows um, in order to cure them of of the the pink eye, but it also meant that they couldn't sell their the, those cattle for a premium as antibiotic free. Wow. And, and you know, I think consumers think that if they're buying antibiotic-free meat, they're automatically getting the flesh of a healthier animal, and that may not be the case. There's so much nuance in this, and your book really does a great job of helping us understand how much more complicated it is than slapping a label on a piece of, you know, cellophane that says antibiotic-free. And I found that so interesting. While we're on the subject of of animal welfare, when I got to the chapter that's on cattle branding, I I literally cringed because I just, you know, it it just seems so painful and it seems so archaic. And I assumed, um, you know, that modern technology could replace that process. But in your book, I, I was able to read about how rural meth addiction and cattle rustling is a thing and how those yep. two issues intersect to make branding seemingly necessary, at least in Rick Hammond's view. Talk to us about what you saw and learned about this issue. Yeah, well, talk about a strange confluence of, of 
forces and and um, you know major issues that arrive in in unexpected ways farm but you know many farmers had started going to these um, electronic ID tags that are in the implanted in the ears of, of the cattle um, but the problem with them is that while they're very good for uh, for identification and for you know you can connect them directly to an electronic database and all that kind of thing um, they're also easily removed if someone's intention is to rustle cattle and that seems like the sort of thing that is long gone and not a problem mm-hmm. at all anymore but it is actually an arising problem um, on the plains related to meth addiction um, at the time that I was there and now opioid addiction following that when there's someone who is looking for money and sees animals by the side of the road that can be, especially young animals that can be just lifted into the back of a truck and have a tag cut out of their ear and sold, um, it's a real temptation and it becomes a real problem for um, the farmers and ranchers who had waves of losing uh, animals that way and even some much more orchestrated efforts where they would come in and take large numbers of animals using animal trailers. And so Rick's view um, was and remains that uh, that having the animals branded makes it um, really impossible to, to market that, that animal um, as your own at, at one of the sale barns and, and eliminates that temptation. Wow. That is something, you know, and, and, and I really never thought about the confluence of drug addiction and, and cattle rustling, but that is a real thing. And I think that's really important for people to realize all the different stressors and all the different influences that impact family farms. Of course, farming is also very weather dependent and you can't control that. And I'd love for you to talk to us about some of the tough decisions that you saw the Hammonds make as the weather fluctuated throughout the season. Right. Yeah. So Megan Hammond, one of one of the things that she loves to say, and she's always sort of mocking her father when she says this, is just you know you can't control the weather and you can't control the markets. And as as we've said, the markets are are completely out of your control, and obviously the weather is also. But the thing that is possible is um, farmers to do some study of weather trends and to make some decisions on what kinds of hybrids and uh, genetically modified seeds that they're wanting to plant in order to essentially make an estimate about about what the best uh, yield will come from for that coming year. And so you end up with a situation where, you know, Rick's seed dealer, um, a pioneer seed dealer, um, has 35 different varieties of soybeans. And soybeans are, are entirely, uh, they, they mature based on the, the number of light units that they receive over a growing season. It's not about heat for them, but um, so they advance um, toward harvest based on, on that num- those numbers of hours of light that they get. And so you can select seeds that, that were 
that have been hybridized or have been genetically modified to mature with fewer hours or with more hours mm-hmm. um, based on the number of hours you normally get. And, um, and you can make selections on which ones thrive with the amount of, of rainfall that they get or how closely they're planted. And, mm-hmm. and so it becomes a kind of guessing game, except obviously for the experienced farmers, it's, it's a guess that is, that is based on often decades of knowledge and, um, and daily observation of how those factors are changing on, on a very particular piece of ground. And it's so complicated. And I want to get into that in a little bit more detail. We've got to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we'll have more with Ted Genoways and his brand new book, This Blessed Earth. Don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I'm so thrilled that you could all join us. Uh, Our guest today, in case you've just tuned in, is Ted Genoways, and his brand new book that we're talking about is called This Blessed Earth, A Year in the Life of an American Family Farm. And what's great about it is for all of us and, and all of my Go Green Radio listeners who want to understand our food system, who want to see positive, healthy, nutritious changes happening to our food system, there's a piece we cannot leave out, and that is the experience of the American farmer, because we have to support that part of the food system. 
and those folks that we're counting on. And Ted has done a great job in his book of illuminating the challenges that they face in order to deliver up the kind of food that we're asking for. And we should ask for. There's nothing wrong with it. We're asking for good things. But understanding their plight and having some sympathy for what they're going through so that we can support good public policy that helps them succeed. Ted, there's so much technology involved in farming that most people probably don't realize. I'd love for you to talk to us about how the Hammonds and other family farms utilize technology to grow our food and the financial risks that they take in order to attain that equipment. Right. Well, over the last century, there's been obviously a a revolution in the the kinds of uh, farm equipment that's used, everything from the tractors and trucks to the the large planters and and combine harvesters and irrigation systems. But in the last decade, the real revolution has been not so much in, in physical equipment improvements as in how those those pieces of equipment gather data, and then together with um, with databases and with software analysis of of the data that's been collected, um, make suggestions for farmers on future planting. And so, when you see a harvester crawling across a field of soybeans, not only is that First of all, guided by a GPS system and harvesting according to the, to the lines that were laid out there months ago um, by the planter and entered uh, into the GPS system, but it's also collected on almost inch by inch, um, plant by plant, how the the individual seeds performed um, that were planted there the, those months before, and so. A farmer can tell not only which fields are most productive, but which seeds in which part of the fields, according to how much water was applied, how much fertilizer, how much herbicide. And all of that information, um, that huge set of data, uh, is becoming uh, the next real revolution in farming. And the goal, of course, is um, to lower inputs to lower the costs of, of all the things that have to be put on the field. But that's also an opportunity to increase and improve the efficiency in a way that hopefully reduces the numbers of, of chemicals being sprayed, reduces the amount of water being used. And so it's, it, once again, it's this kind of double-edged sword where it's something that is a huge challenge for farmers but may ultimately represent some improved sustainability opportunities. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the financial risks, um, you know, that the Hammonds and so many others have to endure, talk to us about what that's like for the family. Well, and that's the problem, is that that when you talk about technology that is changing as fast as it is now, that to, to keep up with the advances that are that are being implemented by large farms where there's a lot of resources to, to expend, um, it means that, you know, an, if there's a new kind of harvester that, that improves your yield, that you need to be renting that and investing in that. If there's a better irrigation system, you have to be putting money in that direction. And that often means that even in the best of times, these farms are incurring larger and larger 
uh, debts, and those debts are are always looming over them and are always creating this pressure to produce and to produce at sort of maximum levels, lest there be some threat to the future of the farm. Mm-hmm. It's it's a scary life. I mean, one of the themes that kept coming off of every page was the stress that the family was under. Um, and oftentimes, the variables that were causing the stress were completely out of their control. I was so sympathetic to that. You know, there are a lot of consumers in America who say, why don't we just go back to organic farming? What do the Hammonds and other farmers like them say about that, Ted? Well, again, you know, this is a place where conversation with farmers and consumers needs to be improved because the number one thing that I hear from farmers when that question is raised is, are people willing to pay for their food? Because going to organic methods, while it's something that many farmers would, would readily embrace if they could, means that, that prices of meat and prices of, of heavily consumed produce would, would increase very rapidly and, and potentially quite, to quite high prices. And obviously, if that's what the consumer really wants and what the market would bear, farmers would do that readily. But the reality is that many of the people who advocate for organic methods um, aren't really creating the kind of, of market that sustains that. They may be doing it at the, at the cash register or at the grocery store, but you've also got to do it at the voting booth and that you've got to make um, putting people in power who are knowledgeable and committed to reforming the system uh, in place or, or nothing is ever really going to change. Mm-hmm. That's so true. And, and it's, you know, these are the kind of topics that impact our lives so directly and so profoundly, and yet they are the last thing anybody's talking about or thinking about when we go to the voting booth. We're not talking about reforming our food system. We're not talking about upgrading our water and energy infrastructure. And yet, these are some of the things that are so rudimentary to our standard of living um, that at some point when these systems begin to fail, I have a feeling generations that come after will ask why we didn't do more when it was cheaper and easier and simpler to make those reforms before the systems broke. Um, and I, I just think that, that your book and, and so many others who are illuminating the full picture for us are so important. And that's why I hope that all of my listeners will get out. You can get it on Amazon. It's the simplest thing to get this blessed earth and really understand from a 360 perspective our food system in a way that uh, maybe you haven't had the chance to do so before. Ted, I'm so thrilled that you were able to join us on Go Green Radio today. And of course, I'm always thrilled when our listeners tune in. And I want to tell you that we'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.
you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.